welcome to Ingest, the podcast series designed for primary care clinicians and brought to you by the Primary Care Society for Gastroenterology. My name's Charlie Andrews, I'm your host, and I'm also a GP based near Bath. On today's episode, I'm going to be discussing fit testing with Dr. Kevin Monaghan. Dr. Monaghan is a consultant gastroenterologist at St. Mark's Hospital in London. He undertook his PhD at Cancer Research UK and at St. Mark's Hospital, and has spent nine years working at West Middlesex University Hospital and Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, where he still leads a cancer genetics clinic. He's also an honorary senior lecturer at Imperial College London. In this episode, we're going to be talking about fit testing in primary care. Dr. Kevin Monaghan was the lead author on the joint guideline from the Association of Coloproctology of Great Britain and Ireland and the British Society of Gastroenterology, which was released in 2022, looking at fit testing in patients with signs or symptoms of suspected colorectal cancer. These guidelines have really changed how we approach fit testing in primary care. Going back several years, we were looking primarily at symptom-based approaches to referral to secondary care for suspected lower gastrointestinal cancer. The introduction of FIT testing has provided us with a more objective marker, and this guideline has really helped to enshrine how we should be using that both in primary and in secondary care. In October 2022, NHS England endorsed the use of this guideline in primary care. Uh, The statement that it made was that all GPs should now implement the recommendations in this nice accredited evidence-based guideline in full. In particular, the guidance recommends the use of fit testing in primary care for patients presenting with all suspected colorectal cancer symptoms except those with anal rectal mass or anal ulceration. As I'm sure you're aware, fit testing is also been on the agenda within primary care for some time. So the Impact and Investment Fund for 2022-2023, one of the 32 indicators was to ensure that all lower gastrointestinal two-week weight cancer referrals should be accompanied by a FIT test. We've just received the latest contract and the Impact and Investment Fund for 2023-2024, despite being reduced from 32 indicators down to just five, this has remained within the investment and impact fund. So we are still being asked to ensure that lower gastrointestinal two-week weight cancer referrals are accompanied by a fit test. So this is obviously a very topical subject, really important one. I'm looking forward to getting into this with Dr. Monaghan. So we're going to crack straight on into it. So Dr. Monaghan, this guidance, how has it changed what we're doing in clinical practice? What are the key messages from this latest guidance for our GPs? Well, thank you very much. Well, um, one of the benefits of having this this guideline, it's, it's actually the first clinical guideline. So it provides some backing for for um, clinicians, not, not only in secondary care, but mostly in primary care, whereby the decisions that are being, have been made haven't until now been supported by a, a guideline, which is a kind of a multi-society and multidisciplinary guideline, which had you know, strong representation from primary and secondary care, which is absolutely essential when you produce something of this nature, which is so relevant for practice across, you know, um, the whole patient pathway. Um, so I think that was one of the, the key things was to produce something that which, which backed up um, people's decision making when they're using FIT um, in patients who have symptoms. Um, I think some of the some of the key messages from the guideline are that, in my view, it, it will improve patient access 
to investigation, the patients who are most likely to have a cancer diagnosis will find it easier to access investigation than they would have previously. Um, and um, FIT introduces um, objectivity where we were using um, symptoms and we're kind of working under this paradigm or this idea that symptoms somehow were a useful way to predict who might or might not have cancer. And, uh, you know, obviously many of us are very clinically skilled and maybe very good at kind of working out patients who, who, with symptoms who, which need to be investigated. But if we're trying to rule out cancer, it's slightly different from investigating symptoms. And, uh, and actually, if we're trying to rule out cancer, symptoms are not reliable. And FIT is, a, is the first time we've had a tool where we can be more precise about how we select patients for investigation that's likely to provide benefit to them uh, and identifying those patients who are more likely to have cancer. And, and the reason I think that it's going to improve access is that, first of all, we'll be identifying those patients more effectively. And, um, and you know, your risk of having cancer, if you have a positive or a FIT test above threshold, uh, whether you have symptoms that met the kind of high risk symptom criteria for NICE or whether you had low risk symptoms as they've previously been known, it's actually exactly the same. So if you have any symptom, any bowel symptom and you have a fit above threshold, you have a, you know, a significant likelihood of having a cancer diagnosis. Uh, and if you have um, any symptom and you have fit level below threshold, actually the likelihood of having cancer is is not actually higher than someone who doesn't have symptoms at all. Um, so the likelihood of having cancer, if you have a fit level below threshold, is about one in a thousand, which is if you if somebody comes in to see you in, in surgery and they're a 60-year-old and they've, you know, they've been describing you know, loose bowel motions and they're, they're there with their spouse, actually their spouse is more likely to have cancer than they are if they have fit below threshold. Um, and, and really, you know, we need to, Kind of maybe we, we suppose it, it requires a kind of a change in how we think about how we manage some of these patients um now um ultimately that person who has a change bowel habit may need to have some sort of investigation but it may not necessarily be on a suspected cancer pathway and and you know some people don't necessarily require a great deal of investigation and um, you know they may have piles with bleeding um and um i mean we can talk about bleeding separately if you like but you know um, you know, that bleeding may need to be investigated, but not necessarily on an urgent pathway. So does this map on to the NICE guidance for suspected colorectal cancer? And it's therefore used as a more objective marker. Is that what you're telling us here? Yeah, it's sort of like the next next level up uh, in a way. Uh, and NICE are currently revising their guidelines and recognise that their, their, guide, their previous guidelines are out of date and actually... Um, kind of no longer really represent a defensible practice in the era of fit testing. And actually what, what, what people need really are, are new published guidelines and NICE are aimed to publish their kind of updated guidelines by the end of this year. Um, and they're using what we've done with the BSG ACP guideline that we published you know, in 2022. Um, they're using our kind of our guideline as sort of a, a new template rather than thinking about what they produced previously in 2012 with the NG12, for example. And that's because the way that we select patients and the way that we try and find those who have cancer in order to diagnose them earlier is, is changed, really. Um, and I think it is obviously there were some changes that were driven through the pandemic, whereby, you know, everything was access was very difficult. And, you know, I mean, 
for for a couple of months none of us were scoping you know i mean it was just obviously a really dreadful situation and and therefore there was a new imperative for the use of it but uh, as as we all know there there was considerable variability but fit was you know was starting to be used more routinely in practice across uh, across the uk and um and in scotland they're probably a little bit ahead of us in england in that respect and that they've been using fit for longer in this way and they've kind of done in with the with the high risk low risk symptom kind of dichotomy um uh, recognizing that actually using fit is, a, is kind of a better approach so for for a gp who's who's sort of in clinic for example someone who they're suspecting that they may want to make a two-way referral for so for example change in bowel habit over a over a period of time, um, that's where fit comes in. Rectal bleeding, the the guideline that you've produced appears to sort of cover a lot of areas that previously perhaps weren't being covered or were a bit more ambiguous for GPs. So things like rectal bleeding, iron deficiency, anemia. There were some question marks over whether we should be using fit for that. But your guidance is saying that we should be using it for all of these causes, uh, all of these potential reasons for referral. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that is because we took a step back and we all have our kind of, uh, I suppose, we come in at this perhaps with an element of, well, does, does this actually make sense? And people think about PR bleeding, for example, well, why would you do a fit test if somebody's got PR bleeding? And it's a common, common query. But actually, you know, they are, they're, they're looking for very, they're very similar. They're obviously PR bleeding and, and hemoglobin in stool but they're not the same. And um, if you do a fit test in people with PR bleeding, there are over 70% of patients who would not require referral for investigation because within, with a fit below threshold, their PR bleeding is more likely to be due to anorectal causes rather than, um, which are not kind of related um, to a cancer diagnosis. Um, and it's very unlikely that they will have cancer. So I think that there's sort of a, um, an idea that you know um, people wondered why on earth would you do a fit in this situation, and that's because actually you know fit is it's a test for colorectal cancer. That's that's what it is. Um, it's uh, it's 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 a way of stratifying risk. Um, it's not a diagnostic test, but when you stratify risk, even in the context of PR bleeding or iron deficiency anemia. Um, if you have a fit below the threshold, then your likelihood of having colorectal cancer is incredibly low. Um, now, whatever symptom you have, whether it be PR bleeding or, um, you know, diarrhea, some of them may well require referral and investigation. Um, you know, they may require an endoscopy. Um, you know, obviously there are things, the investigations that can, that can be performed that don't require referral that GPs do all the time, celiac serology and full blood counts and iron and whatnot. Um, and I, I think that the, the ones who don't necessarily need to be referred on, on the urgent pathway, they're a somewhat heterogeneous population, but they're a heterogeneous population in whom the risk of cancer is really low when we're thinking about other causes for the symptoms. And I guess our key here is we're saying that the risk is very low, so we can explore other reasons for those symptoms, as you were saying, things like piles, hemorrhoids, and celiac disease. In, in terms of iron deficient anemia, I've, I've really wanted to understand why it is that some of the previous studies were showing that, you know, the, the, the fit was not quite as accurate in iron deficient anemia, but why we now feel that it is an accurate test to be done. Is, do we know why some of those previous studies showed that? 
Yeah, I think the evidence has evolved, and it, it is. Um, I think that the first kind of studies, which were observational studies in, in, in small, relatively smaller number of patients, patients who had cancer, and there will be cancers in people with a fit below threshold, and no test is perfect, and we have to recognise that, you know. Um, but it, um, I can talk about more about that in a moment. I think it's an important point as well. But if you have um, uh, 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 a fit below um, 10, let's say, as which is the arbitrary threshold that we've been using, um, and you have a diagnosis of colorectal cancer, it was observed in some of those series that um, many of those cancers occurred in people with an iron deficiency anemia. So it's uh, essentially almost anecdotal level evidence. If you take a step back and you look at some of the bigger studies, like the NiceFit study, which recruited uh, you know, actually 11,000 patients who were referred on the urgent pathway and had a fit before colonoscopy. If you look at the, those larger data series, fit is as useful in patients with an iron deficiency anemia as it is in somebody with a change of bowel habit or bloating um, or you know, non-specific abdominal discomfort. Um, so fit is um, you know, no less useful and, and no less sensitive or specific in people with iron deficiency anemia. Um, and so the, the kind of the, the larger series of um, uh, patients who've undergone fit prior to colonoscopy um, kind of indicates that iron deficiency anemia can be treated in the same way. Now, if somebody have, has iron deficiency anemia, some patients may have had a big drop in their hemoglobin over a short period of time. And that might be a trigger for you to say, look, I, I actually think this patient really needs to be investigated urgently. Fair enough. Um, but how they're investigated then, if they've had a fit test, if the fit test is negative, then actually maybe it's upper jaw investigation that will be prioritized over a colonoscopy. Um, for example, if they've been iron deficient, if they've been iron deficient and their hemoglobin has been stable for many years, they almost certainly won't need to be investigated if they have a fit below threshold. And actually, you know, a lot of patients are like that, I think. Um, and, um, you know, where the hemoglobin has been consistently hovering around, you know, just slightly below normal or around normal for, for many years. Um, so I think we all have to, we have to use our clinical NAS. There are those patients where you think they've got iron deficiency anemia, Plus, you know, if they've got something else going on. You think, actually, this person is somebody I really would like to be investigated urgently. Mm. And of course, that's an entirely fair. Fit is a, it's just a way of assessing risk. Um, it doesn't replace clinical NAS. However, it's better <laughs> than clinical NAS on its own. And um, uh, if you have, um, you know, any test is not a binary test. It's not going to identify all patients who have cancer or, or you know, rule out it's certainly not a rule out test um and we should therefore you know employ the, clinic, the clinical skills that we have um mm. to identify those patients who perhaps do need to be referred urgently um yeah and consider other other factors that are relevant of course there's a useful flow chart in your in the guidance that you put together sort of talking about which patients were kind of excluded from this pathway so i think it mentioned people with an abdominal mass or an anorectal mass potentially wouldn't be suitable for a fit but for a direct two-week wait but all the other presentations that we really commonly see in primary care fit is really good but you also mentioned and, and you've you've covered this quite a bit already actually is that if you've got that ongoing concern this isn't a route this doesn't prevent you from referring if you have significant concerns despite a negative fit um, and I think that kind of responds to that 
that concern from primary care of potentially holding too much risk uh, or being being asked to hold a lot of risk in primary care. Um, you know, what are your comments on on that? I mean, I, I can I can completely understand and also it's a change in practice and we've been told for so long that these are high risk symptoms and therefore they need to be investigated urgently. And now there's, there's a different message and, you know, you, you in primary care, you need to be backed up with, you know, with not only the BSG ACP guideline, hopefully very soon the NICE guideline, which almost certainly will produce evidence, which is very much in tandem. Um, and... Um, uh, but also need to be backed up with, um, you know, when you're when you're doing something different, you need to be backed up in how you're communicating with patients who have an expectation of a certain thing because somebody else in their family has been investigated in this way, and now we're doing something different. And what why is that? But um, but I feel quite comfortable that actually we're going to be much better at finding our patients who have colorectal cancer. And you know, when you think about, you know, maybe maybe a slightly extreme example, but younger patients who had um, uh, symptoms typically would attend primary care several times before referral. And that's fair enough because bowel cancer in people under the age of 50, although it, overall the prevalence is increasing, it's still really rare, it's still really exceptional. And for all the people you'll see in primary care who are under 50 with symptoms, you know, you, you probably will encounter one person over your entire career who will have colorectal cancer under the age of 50. Now, um, you know, obviously that would be a very memorable um, uh, case, but also you kind of maybe think, well, what could I have done differently? And that's actually really difficult because GPs haven't had any tool until now to pick out that patient. And what we called in a publication, finding the needle in the haystack. Um, at, you know, people over the age of 50 in England um, and already from 56 onwards can participate in the National Bowel Cancer Screening Programme. So there is another mechanism by which they can be investigated. Um, and um, but people under under fifty in particular haven't had access and haven't been you know easily ident um, identifiable um, from the many people who have various symptoms which are obviously you know not, nothing to do with the colorectal cancer diagnosis in that age group and you know picking picking out someone who has IBS symptoms with colorectal cancer how do you pick that person out from all the other IBS patients who you know obviously you know don't have anything abnormal when they're investigated. Um, in secondary care, for example. Are we able to use this in people under the age of 50? So yeah, FIT can be used in anyone, any adult um, from the age of 18 onwards um, at the same threshold. Um, and there are some people who argue that you could use a slightly higher threshold because this is a lower prevalence population with lower rates of colorectal cancer. Um, but when we, when we produced the guideline, we wanted to produce something that was very simple and fairly robust and, and having different thresholds for different populations is something that we wanted to avoid. Um, the, um, the paper that I mentioned, this fi finding the needle in the haystack, was uh, a group of just over a thousand patients with symptoms under the age of 50, of whom about one and a half percent had a colorectal cancer diagnosis. Um, and FIT was, you know, if you perform a FIT test, then actually nine percent of those patients uh, can be of the patients with a fit above threshold will have colorectal cancer. Um, and so it's 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 not a small proportion. So if you use fit, although you may refer, you know, um, let's say uh, of 11 patients, 10 of them will have normal investigations. One in 11 is not a bad mm. you know, figure in terms of referral. And these are patients that may not have been referred previously or certainly not until the symptoms were really becoming persistent and, you know, really couldn't be explained. 
So we're hoping that we will be able to shortcut that referral pathway and and provide GPs with a tool that mean that that you know really that really allows them an opportunity to try and ensure those patients are able to access care at an earlier stage without having to kind of return and also mm-hmm. the reassurance of having a negative fit test and saying look yep. you may need to have a routine referral but uh, we're not you know we're not concerned about anything too serious here um, on a bit of an aside just because I'm I'm pretty interested are we, firstly two parts of this question are we seeing an increase in colorectal cancer in people under the age of 50 and if so why is that happening so yeah i mean worldwide there's an increase i think italy is the only country in the world where this has been measured and there are probably system related issues in italy that make it a little bit different but across the, the globe there's been a global increase in the incidence of colorectal cancer in people under the age of 50. now these are people who most of them are 45 to 50 years of age. Um, and um, in the US, they've just brought the screening age down to 45 from 50 in order to capture this population. However, they still represent really a small portion of the overall kind of disease burden. So it's about you know six, maybe 7% of all colorectal cancer occurring on the, under the age of 50. Some can be you know, identified as being a high risk because they maybe have family history, for example, or a personal history of inflammatory bowel disease for which they should maybe be having, um, you know, colonoscopic surveillance. But the, the majority actually cannot be easily uh, predicted. The reasons why, why it's happening, I think people speculate that it's something to do with environmental risk and, you know, increase in, in, in obesity and, and, and diet and whatnot. And I'm sure that there is an element of that, but that hasn't, hasn't been conclusively proven that that is the case. I think that probably those things will mean that somebody, rather than getting cancer at 51, will you know, now be getting it uh, at 46, for example. And that may account for the kind of largest proportion in the increase. Um, but I think the jury is, is still out. Um, um, but it is increasing to the extent that we kind of need to think about this, this population in, in, a, in a way that perhaps we hadn't been previously. Ho- hopefully fit is one thing that we can, we can do. Um, you know, uh, uh, there are other things happening for younger people who might be at risk. So, you know, access to genetic testing is easier. Um, it's, it, you know, it's easier to, uh, to get, have a genetic test with a certain level of risk than it was even two or three years ago, for example. Um, but I don't think that it's all been kind of figured out. Although there's, there's increasingly attention across the globe um, into the kind of issue of people getting cancer at an early age. And why that is and what can, what can we practically do about it on a slightly different note so just thinking about this fit negative group of patients now so we've we've got a fantastic test that can tell us which patients we should be referring as via to we wait but we're going to have a large number of patients in in primary care potentially where we are investigating and they're negative and then obviously we're then caring for them in, in primary care and i guess at that point as you said we're then looking at you know, exploring different causes, making sure we've done celiac screens, et cetera, et cetera, to look for other causes of their symptoms. Is there a role for repeat fit testing in this group of patients? Well, I think that, that's a good question. Until now, um, there, um, there has been some um, interesting uh, emerging evidence uh, that suggests that doing a repeat fit test may be of value. And I think Probably, I would speculate that in, in real-world practice, people will end up having repeat fit tests if they have persistent symptoms after a few week and few weeks. But you know, there isn't really 
kind of a, an explanation and also it's not they're not so alarming that people feel they need to be referred urgently now uh, at the time that we published the guidelines um there was um uh no really great evidence that uh, doing repeat fit tests would add uh, add much value and that's mostly because what had been published and that included um you know a big series in the northwest of england um that hadn't actually been published yet but which we had access to um the um there was a, there were a lot of different approaches in how patients were repeat fit tested you know some had uh, two tests from the same stool sample um some had you know repeat tests performed several weeks apart some had them twice in the same day not all studies actually demonstrated any benefit there were one or two that did but really the the um I think this is one area where potentially this could be something that would provide um, a sort of safety netting in primary care or an additional level of reassurance. However, um, I think um, you know we're, we're, this isn't quite been quite been fully kind of uh, worked out. There, there have been a couple of other papers published since the guideline came out. There's a very nice study from Edinburgh um, where they um, uh, randomised people either to have uh, repeat fit test or not and the, the the tests were performed at very specific time points and that's the kind of more useful study that I think that, which was which is likely to inform practice because it tells us well is there any point in doing a fit test a day apart you know it, probably not um, we would speculate there's no, nothing to suggest that it would be useful but is it useful to do it three weeks apart or you know, what's the right time interval and um, you know what's the negative predictive value of doing two fit tests, you will still have people who have colorectal cancer who have two negative fit tests, whatever interval you separate. But it's probably fewer than the even one in a thousand that have um, colorectal cancer after one uh, uh, fit below threshold. Um, but, you know, nothing will ever be perfect. Um, I think what we have is a, even with one fit test, is a really good test to you know, identify patients who are at high risk of having colorectal cancer. And, and conversely, a population of people who are at really quite low risk. Um, and, you know, if you if you do it twice a, a few weeks apart, you you know, you may be able to improve that a little bit, but it's already, uh, you know, a really kind of well, over 99, well over 99% ruling out over 99% of patients, as it were. When I say rule out, I shouldn't use the term rule out really, but, you know, um, uh, <laughs> the likelihood of having cancer is is really very low it's uh you know less than 99.5 percent of um of the population or i should say 0.05 percent of the population sorry um so um you know we've got a good test and i think um yes there may be ways to improve it um but we'll we have to kind of juries out on that maybe that it forms part of the nice guideline and that maybe where there's some development and i think of all the areas where there would be a change from the bsg guideline that might well be um a change uh with the kind of next iteration of the of the guidelines but I, we're not sure yet i think it feels like a it feels like a really good step forwards and a really useful test in primary care and and patients are fairly comfortable and used to providing stool samples it feels like a really helpful tool for us to have and and it's been really helpful discussing with you some of the different areas there so thank you so much for for talking to me today I wonder, you've, you've given us a really good summary already, but do you have any key points, any sort of key messages that you'd like our GPs to hear before we finish today? Well, a, a referral with symptoms um, uh, 
with a fit test is better than a referral with symptoms without a fit test. Um, and it's an opportunity for us to uh, apply some objectivity to our patient population that we didn't have access to before. Um, and in terms of risk assessment, it's not be all and end all, but it's, it's, a, it's a real improvement, I strongly believe. Um, and I think that the evidence really supports that. Um, so um, I think, you know, sometimes it's perceived as a test that we're, we're doing to try and manage secondary care um, services and whatnot. It, it, you know, I, I, I truly believe that that isn't the case. And actually, I would have never have wanted to produce a guideline which was about managing resources. And, um, you, know, tr uh, you know, this was about trying to ensure that patients had better access to investigation, those patients who are more likely to have colorectal cancer. And that's what we really set out to achieve. Um, and, you know, we, as part of our kind of our Delphi, we contacted uh, clinicians from across primary and secondary care, but there were more primary care clinicians than the other, than the other clinician group who uh, reviewed the different stages of the guideline. So we, it was really important to us that we had strong primary care representation. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we obviously need that because this is a guideline that, that kind of stretches across the whole patient pathway. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 we can see that people are using it more and more. It, you know, where I work in Northwest London, you know, the use of uh, the, the number of patients who get referred with the FIT test has increased from around 30% to six months ago, it was 70%. And now it's continued to increase since then because people are kind of feeling more comfortable about its use and, and um, it's becoming, you know, the, the new paradigm, I think, for how we uh, assess these patients with uh, suspected cancer symptoms. And is that translating into more cancer pickup once they come through for colonoscopy, for example? Well, that's a good question. I mean, what we did observe, I can say in a sort of kind of corollary way, is that when we switched from FOBT to FIT in the bowel cancer screening program, we are um, finding more pathology. Um, you know, FIT is a much better test than FOBT. Um, it's, you know, the acceptability is higher amongst patients. The uptake in the screening program has improved with the use of FIT um, by, you know, by 10%. I think it's gone from about 60 to 70% in the screening program, which is, you know, fantastic news because you really want patients to attend for the, you know, for screening. Um, and and um, so I think we are seeing that in the screening program. I think, uh, you know, obviously there's data from existing studies suggest that it's, it's more effective way to detect pathology uh, but you know we, we um, are not sure we have data just yet about kind of real world practice um, kind of uh, since we started to use FIT and, and all, almost post-COVID um, NHS. Yeah well thanks so much we'll be interested to see how that sort of that all works out and see some of the data once it's sort of process through the system a little bit more um, but thank you so much Dr Monon for, for joining me today that was I found that fascinating I've I've learned an awful lot and really enjoyed just sort of gaining gaining some information from you some learning and I really hope that our listeners have as well so thank you so much for joining me today all right thank you very much absolute pleasure